Welcome to Vibrant Potential. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Frickman. I took the last three months off. I had a sabbatical from the podcast, and I'm super happy to be back. I have some really fun interviews in store for you. Today's is very exciting. I interview the sleep doctor, Dr. Michael Bruce. And uh, you can check out his stuff at thepowerofwhen.com. You can check out the show notes for today's show at drchrisfrickman.com slash thepowerofwhen. If you've listened to a lot of my shows, or if you know me well, then you know that one of the things that I'm always trying to hone in on is is better sleep. Um, I do a lot of things really well, and like everyone else, I don't do everything perfectly. And sleep is one of the things that, that I've struggled with over my life, trying to get it just right. And The Power of When is a book that, uh, let's see, it just came out yesterday, uh, September 13th. It is great. It's a super good read. It actually puts my mind at ease about um, if you should stay up, you know, do you get up early? Do you stay up late? How much sleep do you need? Uh, Dr. Bruce is, uh, he's a PhD and he is board certified in a sleep specialty. And this guy knows sleep inside and out like nobody that I know. He puts the myth of uh, that everybody needs to sleep eight hours. He puts that to, to rest, so to speak. Haha, <laughs> pun. Check out the book. It's really great. But first, I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Vibrant Potential. We provide you with everything you need to know to overcome stress, fatigue, and chronic health challenges, as well as optimizing your performance in fitness, relationship, and business. We use integrative health solutions and functional medicine strategies, including brain-based approaches, inspired fitness tips, emotional intelligence coaching, and spiritual growth techniques, so you can live the life you want, connect deeply with others, and fulfill your vibrant potential. Your host is functional medicine expert, genetic biohacker, and triathlon coach, Dr. Chris Frickman. All right, Dr. Michael Bruce, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I'm going to just dive right in. Uh, you've got a new book coming out, and this is actually going to launch the same day. So we're a couple weeks ahead of time right now. But September 13th, 2016, The Power of When is going to be coming out. And I was fortunate enough to get an advanced copy of this, and I got to check it out. And it's a fun read. It's really easy to read. But it goes into circadian rhythms and biorhythms, and it's yeah. not just about sleep, but... Actually, what I was, uh, what I thought was a lot of fun was, it actually goes into all kinds of stuff. And actually, I have it right here in front of me. And the the subtitle is, "Discover Your Chronotype," and the best time to eat lunch, ask for a raise, have sex, write a novel, take your meds, and more. So, uh, please tell me a little bit. Like, go ahead and just spend like you know a few seconds on like. All that great stuff, like oh, I'm board certified with the sleep, and, stuff. <laughs> and then um, and tell us about the power of when and circadian rhythms and all that stuff. How does a sleep doctor know about uh, when we should take our meds or write a book and stuff? Oh, absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Excited to be here. You bet. Um, 
So I have a PhD in clinical psychology and I'm board certified in clinical sleep disorders. So uh, what that means is I actually took a medical specialty board without going to medical school. And when I passed, they said, holy crap, I guess you're a sleep doctor now. And uh, <laughs> there are about 160 of us that have ever done that in the world. And um, I'm one of the few that's an actively practicing clinician. And so I've been actually practicing uh, with, you know, uh, with MDs in the practice for the last 16 years. And I've seen a whole lot of sleep patients. Um, but it turns out my specialty is insomnia. So people who have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or who wake up too early, things like that. Well, I have, of course, treated apnea, narcolepsy, all of those good things. Um, I, I found something happened to me about two or three years ago, which was kind of interesting. I had a group of patients who were not responding to my normal insomnia treatments. I'm not a big pharmaceutical guy. I'm much more of a cognitive behavioral therapy um, using non-pharmaceutical ways to help people with their sleep. And um, I had people come in and they said, Dr. Bruce, I don't have a hard time falling asleep and I don't have a hard time staying asleep. Uh, they said, I sleep at the wrong times. I said, what do you mean you sleep at the wrong times? And, and I had heard about, and I had actually even seen a few patients in my practice that were shift workers, right? So people mm. who work at night and sleep during the day, and, and sometimes they get something called shift work sleep disorder. Or I had, some t I had uh, several teenagers who were more kind of night owls, and we were trying to push them back into a normal school schedule. So I had dealt with those kind of things before. Um, but I just started to kind of think through, all right, how can I really get there with this patient, understand what's going on with them. And so when I started to discuss it with them and they said, you know, it's really just about my social world. I said, okay, well, let's do an experiment. So I called up their boss and I said, hey, can they come into work two hours late every day for a week and stay two hours late every day? Because this person was really more of a night owl type of individual. And the boss was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. So we did. And what we discovered was that not only was she more productive, was she more alert at meetings, not falling asleep and things like that, but her family actually reported that she was in a better mood, that she was easier to get along with, um, all these different things. And I said, okay, so, so this is probably happening to a lot of people out there because, you know, I have a fairly small practice. Um, you know, I see, you know, eight, 10 patients a day type of thing. So there's only so many people that are going to actually come walking through my door. I wonder if this is something that a lot of people suffer from. So I decided to go into the medical literature. I found over 350 studies looking at uh, morningness versus eveningness, right? So early bird versus night owl type of things. And th this is what is called a chronotype. So the word chronotype might not be something that's a very popular word, but everybody knows what an early bird is or a night owl is, right? These are people who like to get up early and go to bed early or like to stay up late and get up late. And so I, I started to look through the literature and what I actually discovered was is there's not just two different chronotypes. There's actually three or four depending upon how you slice and dice it. And um, what I discovered was is there's early people, there's middle people, there's late people, and then there's people who do have kind of a crazy insomnia-esque schedule, you know, where they're high and low and things like that, you know, in terms of when do they go to sleep, when do they wake up, their schedule's just all over the place. And so I said, all right, let's see if there might be a way that I could actually identify or assess these four different types. So I created a quiz, um, and if people out there want to check it out, it's at the power of when quiz.com. And um, you can take the quiz for free and you can learn what your chronotype is. Now, what I discovered also was, is well, I shouldn't say I discovered it. I should say that I renamed it um, because I'm not a bird. You know, I'm a mammal. 
And um, I wanted to relate to mammals. And so I chose mammals from the animal kingdom that actually had some of these, actually all of these sleep patterns. And so I chose lions as early birds because we know that lions wake at dawn. They have their first kill then. Um, that's usually when they do all of their kind of business of the tribe. And then they kind of settle down and chill out towards the later part of the afternoon. Uh, if you're in between, you're a bear. And uh, bears historically have been um, animals that kind of rise with the sun, sleep, uh, sleep with, the, with the setting sun, um, kind of affable, kind of graze all day kind of creatures. Wolves are my night owls. Uh, wolves are much more nocturnal in nature. They are hunting at night, doing things at night. And then I use dolphins to describe my not-so-great sleepers. Most people don't know, but dolphins sleep unihemispherically. Yeah, I so, read that, and I thought that was, that was an interesting one. Yeah, that's kind of bizarre, right? So half their brain is asleep while the other half is awake looking for predators. And so I felt like these animals actually represented what I learned about the personalities of the chronotypes as well. Most of the time when you look up morningness and eveningness in terms of assessment tools, it's really just about your schedule. It's not a lot about your personality. And it's not a lot about your sleep drive. Uh, about six or seven years ago, there was a discovery, not made by me, but by... Um, a different group that there's a gene called the PER3 gene. And this gene, actually the length of the gene determines um, basically your sleep schedule, um, your chronotype, if you will. And it's actually something that you could identify through genomic testing. And so I said, wow, there's science here. There's, you know, all these different things. So what will the PER3 gene, mm -hmm. will that tell you uh, more of the how early versus how late? thing exactly or, and or does it tell you how much sleep you need because i know one of the big things that that you mm -hmm. uh that, that you talk about is that it's it's actually a myth that people need eight hours of sleep that's correct um so so actually i'll tell you both um which is kind of interesting there's now we've wow. discovered there's a per2 gene which is right next to the per3 gene <laughs> um that actually gives us a lot of a one and a two if there <laughs> yeah there had to be right exactly if there's going to be a three there's got to be a one and a two um and uh so uh we actually get a lot of that information from those two genes as as we've recently discovered that um but um yeah i don't believe that um i believe eight hours is a myth um i don't believe that everybody needs the same amount of sleep and the chronotypes and these genetic findings actually prove that out quite well um, you know, everybody out there should understand that, you know, you need the right amount of sleep for you, not necessarily the right amount of sleep that the media is going to tell you that you need. Eight hours is something that ca people came up with from a study in the 1940s, um, which was great information back then, but is not something that um, makes a lot of sense these days. As an example, I'm a six and a half an hour sleeper. I always have been. I've never really slept more than six and a half hours. I go to bed at midnight. I wake up at 630. So I'm actually a wolf. Um, in my chronotype characteristics because I like to go to bed late. I just don't need a lot of sleep, so I actually get up a lot earlier than most wolves do. Um, but that's just because that's what my body needs. Does so that make sense? It does make sense. I, I want to give people some of the basics, but I also want to yep. ask a couple of questions that weren't in the book. Sure. Can I tell everybody what each chronotype's kind of personality characteristics are first? and yeah, then absolutely. Absolutely. Run into that? Cool. So lions are my leaders. These are the people that are up at 530. Um, oftentimes they're managers at the office. Um, they're kind of my get it done people. But it's interesting is my lions from a personality standpoint, they're really very logical, very analytical driven. They go from point A to point B to point C to point D. They don't like to derivate at all. They're very scheduled on a path 
kind of get it done people. They seem My, the most type A if, if you use that. You know, yeah, like. absolutely. That's exactly right. I, I would say that they are type A. Um, and what's interesting is one of the other chronotypes has some of that characteristic to it as well. My bears are very type B if we're going to use that kind of characteristic, right? So bears are like these lovable, affable people. These, these are the people that you, when you go to have lunch, you like to sit down next to them because they're always going to tell you some funny story of something that's happening at home or what's going on at work or, you know, something like they that. The they're like extroverted too, it seems Exactly, like. mm -hmm. exactly. Um, and, and they're a lot of fun people. Like these are the people who are standing by the keg at the party or who are ordering drinks for everybody at the bar. Um, they're the people who organize, hey, let's all go to a ball game together type of type of fun as people. As it's before 11 or 12 at night, there, not you can at see? I love it. <laughs> You're picking right up on it. Um, my wolves are very different. My wolves are oftentimes very introverted, but it turns out that they're my most creative um, patients. So these are my artists and my writers and my actors and my musicians. Um, and these are people that are, they're not going to rock up to you at a party and talk to you. As a matter of fact, they're probably not going to show up at a party. And if they do, it won't be till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Um, but once you get them talking and they trust you, it's pretty hard to shut them up. Um, they're really interesting. So it takes a little while for that trust level for them to build to get to that point. But once they're there, then they become very good friends, very good uh, compadres, uh, people to hang out with. And my dolphins are really interesting because my dolphins are type A personalities, but they have this kind of obsessive compulsive side to them. And they have a tendency to never get everything done that they want to get done. So they live in this level of, they're super intelligent, but they live in this level of frustration because they're like, oh my gosh, I just can't seem to get stuff done. And, you know, I'm running around until, you know, one, two o'clock in the morning trying to get stuff done instead of trying to get a good night's sleep and things like that. So me, they, the dolphins made me think a little bit of the warrior gene versus the warrior yes. gene. Oh, I like that. And uh, and then they also made me think of if you're into like Ayurveda at all, uh, uh -huh. then like it's like oh the dolphins those guys are definitely vata. <laughs> so I don't it's know if you're into that dosha stuff or not. I don't know if you know that stuff, but well, I I can't say that I know it well, but you're the third person to turn to me and say, have you thought about looking at your chronotypes with Ayurveda? Because there there appear to be some folks that would fall nicely into those categories. So yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't surprise me. And actually, it would be a huge compliment um, uh, for an honor for me to have be something with, uh, to be associated with, you know, the true Ayurvedics and understanding what's going on there. Cause that stuff's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And it's pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah, uh, it is. It's, it's always a ton of fun to look at that stuff. Yeah. So I remembered what my question was after, after you said, mm -hmm. uh, that you wanted to go in and I'm glad you actually explained them better. Uh, but so my question actually was about mm -hmm. the personality piece because in your book and just now too, you said that wolves tend to be the most creative Yes. And, you know, it's kind of like the classic, like, oh, OK, I'm going to I'm going to be uh, I'm gonna, I've got my day job maybe that I maybe I don't even really care about. But actually, the thing I'm really passionate about is I write my songs and I go out and I do my gigs at night and stuff. And they, you know, the, that seems like the wolf to me. That's in my head. That's the classic one I get. And, and you're talking about this creativity. Uh, so. So that's exactly right. Just so that you're aware. OK, cool. So then I'm thinking about. Uh, so my brain is, is as I'm reading all this stuff, I'm like, I'm like, wait a second. Like, but wolves can be, I mean, excuse me. Uh, I feel like lions can be insanely creative. Like I, like one of the guys I think of is this, um, Brian Johnson or Hal Elrod. Uh, I know Hal. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, it, you know, these guys, that, and they, they espouse getting up at, like, you know, before the crack of dawn. I mean, I'm like, these guys must be lions, you know, like. Right, right. You know, so get up and like do get all yeah. this. Ba- they're almost done with work by the time their kid and their wife is getting up or something, you know, like. Right. Well, it's kind of funny with Hal. So um, Hal actually interviewed me for his Miracle Morning documentary. Okay. Um, and is using me, used me kind of as a juxtaposition because my argument was is that everybody can be. Um, have a miracle morning. You just don't have to all have it at five thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? Like you, you know, it's kind of hard to go against Mother Nature. So a wolf, you know, it, it can actually have a miracle morning. It just might not be until eight thirty, as opposed to five thirty, depending upon their chronotype. It's just hard to go against your genetics. Uh, and retrain yourself. My theory has always been kind of go with the flow, kind of like a, a Tai Chi attitude, which is, you know, whichever you know, way your energy is flowing and, you know, your genetics is one of the core base ways that your energy flows is you should kind of follow that and kind of work your way through that. And so the way I got from sleep schedules and what time do you wake up and go to sleep and chronotypes to uh, all the different cool things that I, I can teach people what time to do them is once I know what time you wake up and go to sleep, I know what your hormone distribution is for the day, right? And so I know when your cortisol is high, when your epinephrine is low, when your adrenaline is high. And so what I did was I matched those um, substances, those hormones and neurotransmitters to different things that people do during the day. And I was able to discover that they're literally perfect times of day to do certain things. Sure. That, that makes a lot of sense. So that's why, that's where you get into the, when to write your book, when to exactly. have sex and all those other things. Yeah. Uh, so, so a question about that, a clarifying question is, mm-hmm. uh, because I've seen these sort of whatever biorhythm clocks sure. or whatever you want to call them, where mm-hmm. it says like, you know, you should do your, if you want to be a weightlifter or some kind of sports person or something, and you want to gain the most strength possible, you should do it like maybe around four in the afternoon, because that's when you have the most amount of, eh, I don't think it's testosterone, maybe it's growth hormone. Something is like high at that time. So I've, I've seen like, oh, that's when you should do strength training. And, um, so let's say there's a cortisol, there's a cortisol spike in the morning, correct? Yep. That's how you wake up. In essentially everyone. Um, So let's say you've got lions, you've got wolves. uh, Maybe some people are waking up at five. Some people are waking up at, I don't know, nine or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Is is the idea there or does your research show or whatever, is let's say a wolf is going to wake up at nine o'clock. I'm assuming that means that their cortisol is is spiking, you know, whatever it is, 8.30 to 9.30, somewhere around in that range. That's Um, correct. So if they start, if they just like wake up every day at six and, uh, and I don't mean to like fly in the face of you can't change your chronotype, but it's just like a question, you know, of course, if they're they're waking up every day at six uh, and so then that, that spikes their cortisol and then they and then they make sure that they make love at 9 a.m. Uh, and then that'll spike their testosterone. And, mm-hmm. and like they do the things that, you know, you, to try to train a biorhythm to what they think that they want it to be instead of going <laughs> with the flow. Right, um, right, right. You know, they've got the lion envy, let's say. Like, exactly. Like you wrote about. Ex- exactly. Uh, I, I got to be a lion. And like I got to get up and, you know, make whatever, make things happen. So my understanding... And it's not like I've delved into the research, so that's why I'm asking the expert here. Uh, my understanding was that you could kind of retrain 
uh, those when those hormones will spike and stuff. So it's interesting. Um, you can, but you have to be super diligent to do so. Okay. And there's a couple things that you would have to do. So one would be that you would have to do some level of hormone supplementation. Uh, oh, really? Probably, okay. yeah, probably melatonin. Um, at very specific times in the evening. Because remember, my theory is all based on your sleep chronotype and, and, and the natural ebb and flow. So you really are going against what your natural body wants to do. Um, can you fudge it? Can you turn yourself from, let's say, a bear into a lion? You can. Um, you have to use light therapy, caffeine, and melatonin to do so. Um, almost the exact same prescription that I use for people with jet lag. So if I've got somebody who's flying from, let's say, L.A. to Europe, um, and then I can actually create a jet lag schedule for them using those three things and, a, and napping at a very particular times, I can get rid of their jet lag almost immediately. But the problem is if you're trying to change your chronotype or, or you have lion envy, as, as you correctly uh -huh, identified yeah. it, right, um, you have to change it every day. Right. And, and so, it, so it's really, really hard to change it. And then it's probably, <laughs> I'm guessing it's super easy to fall back to what exactly. you call your natural chronotype. Exactly. And most people on the weekends would, right? Because they're fall not going to get, right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they're going to say, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I'm just going to go back and, and sleep, like let my body kind of, you know, check in and, and do my own thing. And so what ends up happening is, is it's, it's very, very difficult to maintain. Um, but let's say you needed to just be a lion for a day. Well, that's actually not a, not a hard thing to be able to do. Again, using light therapy um, and you, getting using bright light in the early morning hours to stop the melatonin from, from that sleep inertia, which is sort of that your body wants to continue to sleep kind of thing, and using caffeine appropriately about 90 to 120 minutes after you wake up, after you've had that light therapy, then you would actually probably hit it pretty hard and, and you could do pretty well. So, so here's a question based around that. You're talking about a lion for a day, and it makes me think of endurance sports. It makes yep. me think about how whether <laughs> that's a whole different subject, uh, which is interesting. But endurance sports are super difficult. I mean, are you talking like ultra marathoners, like who run a hundred mile type of uh, thing? Actually, so I actually had two different questions. But okay. so the first one was just for whether you're whether you're really competitive or you know the average joe going out to be like hey i wonder if i can finish a triathlon or a marathon or something right and, right. and i don't mean like the kind of ultra racing where you're like up overnight and stuff like that okay just, just the fact of like uh regardless again of when you like to get up like a triathlon for example which i've done quite a few of usually you have to get there at the race nice. venue around six Right. And so you're usually having to get up at, you know, 4.30 if, yep. if, like, if you're close to the race venue. And right. so uh, for a wolf, that might feel like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? So, yeah, it um, would be tough. Yeah. So And it always feels early to me, although it's sort of like <laughs> I'm amped up enough that it seems to work or right. something. But right. so curious, like, do you ever recommend – I don't know if, you've, uh, if your patient base has included those types of people, if you have any it has. recommendations for people to – to kind of like, do you prep? Do you prep for the whole week to kind of get ready for it, or do you just like sleep as good as you can, and then if you only get four hours the night before, who cares? Or what's your approach? So there's two ways to go about doing it, and it usually is based on the type of athlete I have and the level of performance that they want to achieve. So I've, I work with professional athletes. 
um, all the time. And when you work with professional athletes, they are not interested in only getting four hours the night before a competition, right? Because they know it will have an effect. And so for them, we're trying to respect their chronotypes as best we can. Um, there have been some great studies, by the way, looking at um, uh, pitchers, as an example, and chronotypes. And we find that there are certain pitchers who pitch better during the day than they do at night games based on their morningness versus eveningness propensities. Um, things like that. So when you're talking about somebody who's a competitive professional athlete, you need to get your rest uh, based on your chronotype because you will perform better. Um, but if you're not at the at that ultra competitive level um, where you know you're making your living, uh, you know, with, based on sponsorships and getting paid by your team, um, then yeah, you can actually be just fine by getting only you know four to five hours of sleep um, the night before. Um, because your adrenaline is going to carry you, you're probably going to be taking um, supplements during the race. You know whatever the you know the goo is or the or the different things. Um, so it's uh, you know there's lots of different ways to kind of uh, supplement that energy level because that's really what they're looking for is sort of an energy source, um, and that can be you know difficult um, but certainly manageable. So what I tell people is is you know if if you're if if you're trying for your personal best then I would get as much sleep as you can. If you're doing this for fun or working with the group or what have you, then you know it's okay to, to wake up at 4.30 to be at the race by 6. Um, some of my athletes will actually get a hotel room uh, right near the race site. Um, and that way they actually don't have you know, any of the distractions that come with their home, like kids wandering in, animals, televisions, things like that. And so I have some people who kind of combine the two and they just get a hotel room right near the race site. Got it. Okay, cool. So uh, the other side of the endurance sports question was, um, have you ever heard of a, a race called Ragnar? I have not. Tell me about it. Oh, okay. Well, essentially it's like a, I mean, it depends on how fast you are, but it's a relay race. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just did one. I, I was invited to do it. And I actually, cool. I actually said no for like <laughs> at least four years or something like that because it, right. I said, wow, it sounds horrible. Uh, 200 <laughs> miles. Oh, my God. People. And, you know, so we ended up, you know, you all run about 2017, 20 miles, something like that. And you mm -hmm. do it over three, three different legs. And so you have to you're sort of up all night. I mean, you can try to catch a couple hours, but you're up like the whole time sort of. And mm -hmm. yeah. I, so the interesting thing, I, I can't, I can't decide yet if I would recommend it for people or if I'm going to do it. Again. <laughs> it, was, it was a very interesting experience. Now I'm not, I have never been in the armed forces or anything, but, but the, the question that I wanted to ask you was, um, how, how, how much do you feel like one night of sleep deprivation is like, how detrimental is that to someone who's otherwise sleeping pretty well? And, mm -hmm. and what kinds of effects going to have? Because it was actually like intensely bonding, if that makes yep. sense. Like, like sure. it was like, holy crow for 30 hours. Like I came together and I knew, I knew a few of the people but mm -hmm. it was a team of 12, and I think nine of them or eight of them I didn't know beforehand. And, oh, wow. 
And so I, I didn't know them. I was invited by like the sort of the instigator and, and like she knew all of them, but we didn't all mm-hmm. know each other, if that made sense. So, sure. And, and by the end of it, it's like all these people are like your best friend and, uh, you know, right. will, you, will you give me away at my wedding? And, you know, oh like, it's, like it's like you're just so uh, intensely right. bonded to these people in one 24 hour period. And it's mm-hmm. just, I was wondering, I wonder how much of that is, could it, any of it be like hormonally based or, mm-hmm. you know, something about, is it just because we're all reaching for this like common goal or does any of it have to do with the sleep deprivation or? Wh- I would argue that yes, it does have something to do with the sleep deprivation. We know that people get over emotional, the more sleep deprived they are, oh, okay, um, sure. both on a positive and a negative side. So when something doesn't go well and you're sleep deprived, you get more pissed off. But when something does go well, you get even happier. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, depending upon how people were doing in the race, like if they were keeping the right pace and they were, and everybody's cheering them on and you get, you, you, first of all, you get kind of a team mentality, which is cool because you weren't a team before you guys walked in the door. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you've got this instant thing. Also, we know that dopamine levels rise when you meet new people and you have new experiences. So everybody there was meeting somebody new and was having this particular race experience for the first time. They may have done other rag, Ragnars is what they're called. Yeah. Um, they may have done other ones, but maybe not at this location. And so all of that new experience and new interaction causes a higher level of dopamine. And dopamine is the pleasure center. I mean, dopamine is the reason why people who take heroin continue to take heroin is because dopamine is what's actually released uh, based on the opioid complexes that you're putting in your body. So it would make intuitive sense to me that between the new experiences and the potential for over-emotionality from sleep deprivation, that that would cause a level of bonding that would be would be really good. Also, uh, clearly, you have to have people there who are, you know, nice people and in yeah, a good yeah. mood. You know what I mean? Like, you can't have somebody there who's kind of like a sourpuss who's like, ah, this sucks, you know, uh, nobody's running as fast as me or I'm running too slow or whatever, you know, to, to get that vibe going. Yeah, that wouldn't be as much fun, you're right. Okay, cool. So... Uh, but I, I kind of made that question so long that I'm going to re-ask the first part of it. Sure. What about the just like one night of sleep deprivation? Is it sort mm-hmm. of like, eh, no big deal? Or is it, so it like depends on what a you're, big deal? Well, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. So there's data to show that one night of sleep deprivation from a cognitive standpoint can actually be pretty significant. Um, you know, I tell my students all the time, do not pull an all-nighter. Number one, you're not going to get information into your memory the way you think you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and number two, your performance is going to be off. You're not going to notice details of a question. Um, you may miss, you know, a double negative, which turns the answer into a positive, um, things like that. You're just not going to be alert and quick from Clearly, a mental. if you want to be at your best on a Saturday, you don't pull an all-nighter mm-hmm. on a Friday. But right. I mean more like long-term, like, you know, if it's like, okay, whatever, we did this on Friday nights, you know, we're, we know we're going to be tired for the weekend, but whatever. But more like, is there any risk of whatever, developing pathology or like anything like mm. that? Or can you kind of like catch up? It's like one night's not going to kill you. kind of. One night's not going to kill you, but there's a caveat is there were there have been at least 10 different studies to show that one full night of sleep deprivation with driving a vehicle mm-hmm. uh, will put you at a stage where you are almost legally drunk in terms of reaction time, right? And so it, while it might not kill you, I would suggest you don't drive um, oh, because that might, that might kill you um, or you might kill somebody else. Ouch, yeah, okay. Yeah, right? interesting point about that one. 
Well, hey, let's take a step back if it's okay. And can sure. you talk about sleep debt? And uh-huh. it, if you, you know, is that a is that a good accurate term or? Well, it's interesting. You know, historically, we've always talked about the idea of sleep debt. So it's like a checking account, and you take out eight hours every night, and then you're supposed to put them back. And when you don't, you have this buildup of debt, and then you try to catch up on the weekends. So, you know, remember our our conversation in the beginning of of the podcast, which was not everybody needs eight hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. So understanding exactly how much sleep you need and then being able to get that sleep consistently. And remember, we're not just talking about um, quantity of sleep. We're also talking about quality of sleep, right? And so the way you improve the quality of your sleep um, historically has been to actually have it um, consistent. So the more consistent that your sleep is, the greater likelihood you are to have high quality sleep, right? So, and what does that mean? That means getting more stage three, four sleep, um, which is what's what's called deep sleep. And that is actually sleep that is that's where your growth hormone is emitted, right? So that's where you get the cellular repair. That's where you get kind of the physical restoration when it comes to sleep. Whereas REM sleep, which happens in the back half of the night, that's where you get the mental restoration um, for your sleep. So, you know, when you kind of are looking at when and how much and what is sleep debt, it gets it can get more complicated than it probably needs to. The, the best recommendations are consistency and in both the timing and the time. Right. And so going to bed at the same time and specifically waking up at the same time are going to do your body a heck of a lot more good um, than making sure that you get your six and a half hours. I kind of think sleep is a lot like a baseball game. Right. And so if you if your baseball game starts at eight and you show up in the third inning at nine thirty, they're not going to restart the game. Right. The game's been going. And that's how you should think about sleep in terms of your circadian rhythm. Your body wanted to go to sleep at whatever your normal bedtime was. You chose not to. And so there's there's a a debt that you're going to pay because of that. Um, The same holds true uh, the following day. A lot of people say, well, if I just if I stayed up until three o'clock in the morning because I was out at a concert or whatever. And then the next day, I'm just going to sleep in and catch up on my sleep. It doesn't work that way. You know, when the third out in the ninth inning hits. Uh, if the score's not tied, the game's over. Same holds true with sleep, is your body wants to wake up at a very particular time, which you have set and which is really set by your chronotype primarily. Um, you staying later doesn't mean that anybody's going to play in extra innings, right? You know. Um, also, the type of sleep that you get by sleeping in isn't the same type of sleep that you missed. So in the beginning of the night, you get stage 3-4 sleep. In the end of the night, you get REM sleep. If you miss your stage 3-4, it doesn't show back up in the back end of the night. That's just not how sleep works. Sleep is actually much more of a particular uh, finite process. And again, consistency is always going to be the key. So can you acquire a sleep debt? You can. Um, Can you catch up on it? It's pretty hard to do. So the recommendation of actually going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time, no matter what, is going to be really good. So getting back to our concert example, if you get home at 3 a.m. and normally you wake up around 6.37, wake up at 6.30 or 7.00. I know that's going to suck, but at the end of the day, go to bed at your as close to your normal bedtime as you can, and you'll fall into that sleep, and you might get more deep sleep that night because you're actually in the zone for deep sleep. All right. What about napping? 
I'm a big fan of napping, um, except for dolphins. Um, my, my patients who are dolphins should never nap because they already have sleep problems and it can lead to more sleep problems. But let's use our concert example again. Um, if you're up till three and I want you to get up at 6.37 o'clock and you've only gotten three and a half, four hours of sleep, then a nap during the day is actually a great idea. There's really two types of naps. Um, there's more of a power nap, which is about 25 minutes or less. Um, or there's a full sleep cycle nap, which is about 90 minutes. So if you can do a 90-minute nap, the best time to do that, um, depending on chronotype, is somewhere between 1 and 3 in the afternoon. Uh, the reason for that is, is that there's a slight core body temperature drop at that period of time, and that's a signal to your brain to release melatonin. We, we've actually seen this um, uh, historically uh, with things like siestas. Right? And so when you look in Latin American countries, they're taking a nap at a very biological time, which is during this core body temperature drop. Um, but if you can't take 90 minutes, 25 is going to be good because at 25 minutes, you don't get into deep sleep. And so it's not hard to wake up. I've taken naps before where I feel like crap when I wake up from them. And it's all right. because I've, I've napped for too long. Everyone's done that. So when you say too long... It's like the interim. It's like you're like 45 to 60 minutes, but you haven't made it to 90. So what I would say is anything over 25 um, and below 90 would be too long. Right, right, right. Okay. So is the power nap, it, is that less important on timing if you're going to do the power nap? Yep. Less important. It's just easy to do around the one, between one and three because of that core body temperature drop. But if you're, if you only got four hours of sleep, you know, a power nap at 11 and then another power nap at two would probably do you, do you some good. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, and you said between one and three and depending on chronotype, is it sort of like, is there another way to look at it? Like about six hours post waking or something like that? Or does, yeah. Um, it's, it's roughly seven and a half hours-ish post, right? And so like, if you're looking at your average bear who's waking up at seven, right, and then you're hitting the, about the two o'clock, that's a roughly seven and a half-ish hours depending upon what you're looking at. So if you're a lion and you're up at 5.30, go seven and a half hours, that, could be, that would probably be a good nap time for you. If you're a wolf and you're getting up at nine, then go seven and a half hours for you. Okay, really cool. Around. Yeah, it's interesting. What do you know? What intermittent fasting is? Because I know you wrote a book about uh, weight loss through sleep techniques and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious. I mean, everybody. I mean, there's so many people that would you know love to be able to take off a couple of pounds. Yeah. Um, intermittent fasting is interesting to me, and I'm wondering about first of all if you think it's okay, and if you do, do you think it's actually good? And if, if you do, then is it best to do it early or late or doesn't matter? Okay. So I know about it, but I can't say that I've studied it with any real depth. So okay. I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert in this, in this area. Um, what I can tell you is, is it's very difficult to fall asleep when you're hungry. Okay. Um, and so a lot of people, when they, especially when they're first starting out doing intermittent fasting, that hunger hits them really hard. And so it makes it very difficult for them to fall asleep. My biggest concern about intermittent fasting is dehydration because um, we know that, um, you know, plenty of people can go for extended periods of time without food. I mean, intermittent fasting is usually right. It's, it's usually like a 24-hour or a 36-hour deal, right? Yeah, or even 16. So, right. and, and some people will do it, I mean, sometimes it's once a week. 
That's mm-hmm. usually if I do sometimes recommend it for my patients, actually. If I do, it's usually once a week for 16 hours, which just means instead of... Uh, so it's not even like not eating for that whole day. It's like just eating from say, only eat from 12 to eight or two to 10 or something. So, so there's actually in my book, there's actually a really interesting study where they looked at mice and what they did was they fed them the same amount of food, same type of food, same amount, but one group could only eat for an eight hour block and the other group could eat throughout the 24 hour cycle and they found that the that the mice that could only eat during that eight hour period of time lost weight. So lost same. Weight. Did they, they, did they consume the same amount of calories? Same amount of calories, oh. identical, which was fascinating, right? And so it talks about the timing. So in, there's a section in my book that's when should you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. And one of my recommendations is if you can keep your eating into an eight to somewhere between an eight and a twelve hour block of the day you're going to be in much better shape because it gives your body the opportunity to metabolize. It gives your body the opportunity. Because what happens is, especially with wolves, is, you know, they're standing in front of the refrigerator at, you know, 1230 at night, you know, and they're looking at the ice cream and they're looking at the, you know, whatever. And then, and they've got a sweet tooth. And so they go for it. And then the body has no chance to metabolize it. And it just, you know, it goes to the storage house, which is your fat, which is your gut. And so you're ending up gaining weight. And so if you're asking me, am I okay with people only eating in an 8 to 12-hour block, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, I and would. You just didn't call it intermittent fasting, but you actually <laughs> you already espoused that. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. And yeah, it sounds like you're, you're more in favor of eating more towards the latter end. It, I, I actually like people eating more towards the beginning of the day. Oh, okay. um, so you find that people don't get too hungry that way. Like if, if you had yeah. done at 6 p.m., uh, you could go until midnight and then go to sleep without being too hungry. Right, exactly. I mean, what, I, what it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And so generally speaking, you know, I kind of go by the old rule of, you know, you should eat like a king. Um, you should, um, you know, have lunch like a prince and you should have dinner like a pauper, right? In terms of the size of the meals. Um, you know, I'm a big protein and fat person in the morning. Um, and then I move towards, um, more like protein, fat and carbs for lunch. And then I'm looking at more, uh, smaller, smaller amount of carbs, um, and protein for dinner, try to stay away from the fats at dinner. Um, and that seems to actually work out quite well. It, again, it just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If you're trying to lose weight, that might not be the best, um, you know, theory for you. If you're just trying to maintain and, st- and keep a healthy lifestyle, that could work quite well. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. It, I don't know. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe it's just something of one of my own little idiosyncrasies, but I feel like whenever I start eating, mm-hmm. then I have to eat the rest of the day. So if I have to <laughs> eat for a small chunk, I have to wait until what might traditionally oh. be lunchtime, and then I can eat. And mm-hmm. you know, so I can essentially skip breakfast, which is like the, you know, as I was growing up, the pollo pollo was so bad. But um, right, I don't know. It seems it seems to work okay for me. But if I try to, if I start eating right away, I do fine too. But I'll definitely consume more calories because I'm not going to stop eating at six. Right, right. I, I'm a big protein shake in the morning first thing. I, I drink 12 ounces of water and then I do a, a you know a plant based protein 
um, shake in the mornings, and that works out, you know, super well for me. But then by ten thirty, I'm have like some sort of a small snack, like nuts or um, avocado or something along those lines. And then for lunch, I'm getting more into the greens, you know. And so I'm trying to do salads with avocado and chicken or salmon or something like that. And then for dinner, I'm kind of trying to scale it back and do something a little bit, you know, not as heavy. Um, you know, cause I'm 48, so my metabolism is starting to slow down a little bit. So I want to be real cognizant of that. Okay. What about dreaming? So we know that people have the greatest propensity to dream during stage REM sleep, which is the rapid eye movement sleep. We also know that during this period of time, this is when you move information from your short term memory to your long term memory. Um, this is when your, <clears throat> your brain creates the organizational structure by which for you can retrieve information, solve problems, things like that. So it really creates kind of this filing cabinet where you put information and it also takes all the crap that's come in through your eyes and your ears and your nose throughout the day and it filters it out as well. So what's nice about it is, is that that's kind of what's going on in REM sleep, which is also when you dream. And so the common theory is that this process is actually a manifestation of the, the memory consolidation. So dreams oftentimes are things that you were thinking about during the day or using that information uh, that you got during the day with other information to create these kind of fantastical dreamlike situations. Most people have a tendency to dream in sequence. So if you wake them up at the beginning of the night and you ask them the theme of their dream and then in the middle and at the end, uh, the theme will, will actually follow. They don't have wildly different themes. They're like chapters in a book, if you will. So okay. there's kind of like some general themes that go along there. Um, also, we know, um, and nightmares, by the way, are very different than dreams. Um, those are two very different kind of phenomenon. We know that nightmare are usually trauma-based, um, and there's usually either an anniversary of a trauma or a recent trauma or something to trigger a memory of a trauma um, that's, that's causing some of those. And there, there are actually now treatment protocols specifically for people with nightmares. Um, there are some medications that have been Where shown. Where uh, find out more about that? That's interesting. Um, actually, if you go to my website, thesleepdoctor.com, I have a free downloadable book all about the science of dreams. Um, that people can get for free. That's an easy one. Um, or um, the research is actually, uh, the nightmare research in particular is done by a researcher whose name is Barry Krakow. He's out of the University of uh, New Mexico. And his research is fantastic. I mean, he's just really, really interesting stuff. All right, cool. Uh, so along those lines, I, I don't know if this will seem like it's along those lines or not, but uh, I think it's pronounced modafinil or yes. provigil. Yep. Uh, so... That is that seems like a fascinating drug to me because to me <laughs> yeah. it's am I correct it's not a stimulant but correct so, it's a non stimulating stimulant is what it's is what it's uh, called and it originally was used for narcolepsy now people are using it as a nootropic um, and so they're using it as what they think is a smart drug um, and so people are you, the thing to remember I mean, it's always still, it's it's a prescription isn't it. Oh, yeah, it is by prescription only. Oh, I didn't know um, there were prescription nootropics. I didn't realize yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I think it's being called a nootropic. I'm not, I don't know if it would actually fall into that category. Okay. Um, but a lot of people will take Provigil because what it does is it makes them very alert, uh, very conscious. They're able to kind of see details that they may not have seen before. Um, I, I would guess, though, that those people are probably so sleep-deprived that um, – it's probably more a level of sleep deprivation that's being overcome temporarily with this drug. And then as soon as the drug wears off, the sleep deprivation is coming back with a vengeance. Yeah, it just seemed like a fascinating thing. I was reading about it, and it's, it's like different than like cocaine 
Very. Amphetamines, caffeine, nicotine, they're all dopamine-based, at least partly. Exactly. And, yeah, and that's correct. And the modafinil supposedly isn't. And this place I was reading about it, it almost like, of course, we used to think this about cocaine too, but essentially they're saying there's kind of no drawback. Like, it just, it erases sleep debts. Like, don't worry about no. it. No. Like, okay, so that's, like so that's not true. So what's interesting, so a lot of what you said is true. So we know that modafinil works in a very different part of the brain than a lot of those big stimulants like cocaine or Ritalin or um, caffeine or things like that. Those are more shotgun approach. They hit the frontal cortex and they just hit everything behind it. Whereas modafinil, it's a very specific area of the brain, primarily your sleep center, um, and, it, and it can have effects there, which can actually be very beneficial. Uh, many of my patients with narcolepsy take modafinil during the day so that they are not sleepy during the daytime, which is one of the hallmark symptoms of narcolepsy. Um, but it does not replace sleep. It does not erase sleep debt. You're still going to have sleep debt and you're still going to need the same amount of sleep. It just makes you feel less sleepy during the daytime. Um, again, because it's kind of hitting in those in those specific centers. And we actually recently learned there's a new drug on the market that we recently learned that there actually is a wake center and a sleep center. And this new drug, it's called Belsomra, it actually turns off the wake switch where historically most pharmaceuticals have turned on the sleep switch and when you're talking about sleeping pills. So my guess is is that we'll start to also focus now on this wake center and we're going to find a lot more uh, medications and supplements that will be able to affect that. Interesting. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Really awesome talk, Dr. Bruce. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. The book is The Power of When. There's going to be show notes at www.drchrisfrickman.com slash thepowerofwhen. You can also absolutely just check out thepowerofwhen.com. Yeah. Thank you for your time today. No, thanks for having me. If people want to take the quiz, that's also available at thepowerofwhenquiz.com. Um, or if you just go to the power of when there's a big button that says take the quiz and um, love to come back Chris and uh, and talk more about sleep it's a lot of fun oh and if if you want to hear what my sleep type is I'm going to let you go to the show notes drchrisfrickman.com slash the power of when if you want to hear what my sleep type is uh, thank you so much Dr. Bruce take care thank you man take care alright there you have it Dr. Bruce, The Power of When. Very good stuff. Like I said, check out the show notes at drchrisfrickman.com slash thepowerofwhen. And there I'll put a link where you can take your own quiz. And I'll also spill the beans on the, the quiz and what my results were from the quiz. So that is my inspired action invite for the week. Take that quiz. Until next week, I'm Dr. Chris Frickman. Here's to your vibrant potential. Visit drchrisfrickman.com for more cutting-edge content, including nutrition and detoxification advice, unique fitness videos, and more.